Hey y'all, David here. Thanks for listening. Just wanted to drop a quick programming note at the beginning of this episode. First of all, at the end of this episode, we had some tech problems, so um, we don't end it in the normal way. Just wanted to let you know that. So to expect that, we are going to fade this episode out at the end. Your programming note, however, is that today on August 15th, we have an episode as normal. Next week on August 22nd, we're going to have an episode with just Tim and I, because Heidi is on vacation in Switzerland with her husband, Scott. So she's getting a to, to go on this grand adventure. The week after that, on August 29th, we will have an episode with just Heidi and I, because Tim is going on his own grand adventure as he and Galen go on their honeymoon to Scotland. So just wanted to let you know about that. The weekend after that, we will be recording uh, the final episode on Loris, which will be all three of us back together again. And then we'll be back together again for the Q&A. So I just wanted to let you know that so you can be prepared. And uh, in the meantime, I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. You were listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on in which we are discussing Eugene Walashkin's novel, Loris. We're going to discuss pages roughly 109 through 180, 180, 180 yeah. So it's the end of the section. Um, first, though, Tim, Heidi, how's it going? You're both on the precipice of great vacations. So how, how, how are you feeling? I feel great, but I feel really excited for Tim. He's going on his honeymoon to Scotland. I'm on a, uh, it's going to be a haggis-free honeymoon okay. because I've had haggis before and that mess is nasty. Okay. Wow. I defy, right. any, yeah, I, I'm coming down. out hot. You're yeah. just throwing it down. Any, if the um, haggis lobby has anything to, if big haggis has anything to say. Yeah, it's called the country of Scotland, Tim. Yeah, big haggis equals Scotland. If Much. you guys have anything to say, but you're gonna have, hit me up on Twitter. You're going to have bourbon, right? Or you can't have bourbon there, actually. You're going to have whiskey, right? And gin, whiskey and gin. Yeah, but gin is for the peasants. The whiskey is for, this <laughs> Scotch. for people. Yeah. Are you like, suggesting I'm not, I don't have the common touch? Um, Heidi? Well, hello? If you want hello, Heidi? to have. <laughs> we I, did. We did this yesterday. Feels, we were um, this feels familiar. We just, I feel attacked yesterday <laughs> on the East of Eden episode um, that, that Sean and Heidi never recorded. At the very end, we got into a whole thing about how bougie Heidi is. So now it's all coming back around. So how on a scale of uh, of um, the people One in bougie in in a Faulkner novel to uh, Marie Antoinette, how bougie is Tim on that scale? I don't, Zero. <laughs> drink gin. Go for it. Go drink gin with the I didn't know the that gin was. Yeah. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't know that gin was like it has for the yeah it proletariat. was yeah it was it was like, I mean we're not talking about you now you can get a really nice gin cocktail in in, in the UK right, right. there's yeah, a right. reason why they had to add tonic to gin yes but it mm, was just like the leftovers that they gave to the peasants and you know the demon gin that's where that comes from that's the whole battle oh. yeah gin is mm. oh. Jen is for peasants. Scotch is for people like you. Okay. Wait. Okay. Well, speaking of um, speaking of the peasants, <laughs> we're here to discuss Loris. Nice. And uh, in this section, I'll just kind of in two sentences summarize what essentially happens, if it even takes two sentences. Arseny slash Ustina, Ustin, and then Ustina on his shoulder, so to speak, enter. They they go on their journey of healing. Both f- for themselves, for himself, and for other people. 
where he provides healing to other people. Along the way, he um, there's a variety of holy fools that he comes in contact with and a variety of just figures in the various communities. He uh, sort of steps outside of time in the process and um, the novel suddenly turns into James Joyce. And so I want to start there because I have a question for you, <laughs> for both of you. Um, I don't actually mean that as a criticism, but it might have sounded like I was. Might, it might have come across as a little snide in my tone of voice there, and dropping that little James Joyce uh, dig might have seemed a little bit cynical, even. But I don't mean it that way. I mean it quite earnestly. And so here's my question: What is the difference between what Joyce is doing in, say, Ulysses, and what Vodoloshkin is doing in this section of Loris? Because there is a sense in which it does, I don't want to call it stream of consciousness, but it certainly evolves into having a sort of shapelessness. I don't want to say there's not a form, but the, the shape of the, of the book evolves. Um, he's obviously playing with time in some specific ways. It becomes a little bit... I, I, stream of consciousness is not the right term, but it's, it's got a stream of consciousness vibe. It becomes... Um, he'll jump from one scene to the next, from one point of view to the next. He's really playing with um, colloquial language, uh, even modern language. Um, and so I'm curious um, what the difference is, again, between James Joyce and, and what Vodoloshkin is doing here. Heidi, do you have thoughts on this? Um, I think that what Joyce is doing is playing playing with form because he's commenting on writing itself and the novel itself and art in the 20th century and the the novel kind of decompensates because life is decompensating and he's speculating on what you can do with the form that seems different to me than what Vodolajkin is doing uh with his voice here which is hit that the, the the narrative splinters as as Arseni slash Ustin is experiencing the world. So the splintering is happening out here in the voice because that's how Arseni himself is experiencing time and his own the story of his own life and his own narrative. So the commentary isn't on art or the novel. Uh, the commentary is on a reflection of Arseni's inner life, which I don't think is necessarily completely divergent from what Joyce was doing because the stream of consciousness is intended to kind of dwell within the mind of his narrator. Um, but we have an omniscient narrator here. It's somebody who is speaking for Arseni, um, and uh, and in speaking for him, he speaks like he thinks like him, tells the story as Arseni is experiencing it. Tim, anything to add to that or challenge that? No, I, I think that's all right. When I, when I think of um, comparing Ulysses with this book, in a way, I think Ulysses is taking what's really elevated and making it common and this book is taking something that's like almost below common. I mean, we, we our hero kind of turns into a madman and elevates him up to something stately and magnificent. So Ulysses is these 
very normal Irishmen quoting Latin, sitting on toilets, and they're kind of acting out um, a great Greek myth. The book is named Ulysses. It's kind of miming the Odyssey. Um, And it's miming Odysseus. This book is we're watching our main character become lower and lower and lower and somehow becoming more and more and more elevated. So I, I just think that they're kind of, they're kind of reversing, I don't know, what is it? Regality or something like that. Mm. The two books are. Does the comparison just come out of left field? Do you understand where the comparison comes from? I guess is what I'm saying. I feel like I understood it. Um, I guess my answer is kind of like testament of whether or not I did understand it. No, I think. Why, why did you? Yeah. I, I'm curious. Why, why Joyce? Because of, the, I guess, the things that I said, the, the sort of like shapelessness to the mm. story, the, the, um, the way he's playing with like language. And I mean, like when you get the characters that are star talking in like 22nd, 21st mm, century see. colloquialisms, you know, he's completely altering the, the traditional forms and tossing them away. Um, and, and he's, you know, he's going the way he plays in and out of people, different perspectives and things like that. It, that's why I think it reads a bit stream mm-hmm. of consciousness, consciousness, because even if it's not stream of consciousness in the, the way the book is defined, the way that term is defined properly, because each he streams from one anecdote to the next, you know, like there's, there is, there is, they, these anecdotes have no context. They have no uh, transitions. It's essentially a, a stream of anecdotes. So let's call it stream of anecdotes if we need to, yeah. rather than streams of consciousness. But but by by playing with the consciousness of arsony that way, like by asking us to experience it that way, it, it's certainly altering our consciousness as readers. Like it's it's asking us to experience it in ways that the novel typically doesn't or any art form typically doesn't. And in ways that this novel has not up until a certain point. And I think it happens mm-hmm. at a very, very right. particular right. point yeah. in the story. In fact, um, so page for me, 130 and 131, Arsene, Arsene meets Stinge kind of in the woods. He's been, and Stinge is this kind of brutal character. I'm going to start reading at the top of page 131. Stinge held a cudgel in his left hand. He was most likely a lefty. That word lefty, I think, David, kind of makes your point. It's and perfect. It's, like, it's very colloquial. It's very 21st century. And yeah. modern, like complete yeah, yeah, anachronism. Yeah. Also, why does it matter? Why does it matter that it's an anachronism, that it's... That he's lefty. Let me keep reading. We can come back. I mean, yeah. I wasn't, it wasn't really like answer the question. It was more like he drops these things are not, that are not okay. clear why they matter. Uh, he was most likely a lefty. A few steps later, Arsene saw his traveling companion too. He was lying in an unnatural pose on the ground behind one of the horses. He was turned so his face looked up and for some reason he was holding one arm behind his back and his legs were convulsively 
scraping at the ground. One of his heels had dug a shallow trench edged with pine needles. He looked at Arseny with unseeing eyes, and in them Arseny could read what awaited this person. Arseny paid no attention to Stinge as he bent over the dying man. He was no longer moving. Stinge thought for a moment and lowered the cudgel on Arseny's head. That is weird. It's like, what are we talking about here? It's like everything is, every sentence is straightforward, but the perspective jumps and it seems to me like I still don't know exactly what has happened right here. Um, we're in Stinge's head for a sentence. We're in our sinnies for several sentences. We're um, kind of with the dead question mark man who is, is he on horseback? Is he laying down? I think he's on horseback. And then we have no notion that Stinge is where he is in proximity to Arsene. He's just bent over the dying man. He was no longer moving. Stinge thought for a moment and lowered the cudgel on Arsene's head. We had no notion that Arsene is like anywhere near him enough to get cudgeled, right? Am I just like totally off? So what... I, I don't know. I think I think there's more detail than you might be seeing there, but I think that I think that the the thief is on the ground behind one of the horses. Okay. He says that he was lying in an unnatural pose on the ground behind one of the horses, but he's been he's been cudgeled by Stinge and is dying. Okay, in pain. That's why his legs are convulsively scraping at the ground. But I think that what you're, I think what you're bringing up is, is actually really important because the whole novel is a, written in a way that's a bit disorienting mm-hmm. and you feel like you're always trying to catch up mm-hmm. and you're kind of go back and reread and wait, am I getting this? Mm-hmm. Like, why is, why is the holy fool cart being stabbed to death by some random loaf baker and What's, is there something that I missed? And you kind of have this feeling of being on your back foot, which I think David's comparison to Joyce is apt because I feel like that when I read James Joyce too. Like, mm-hmm. I kind of feel like, oh, Faulkner what's doesn't. going on? Like, yeah, like the the narrative is so... Um disjointed and it assumes intelligence on the part of the reader and um and it assumes that the reader is willing to work hard enough to to fill in those blanks that are left kind of by the narrative and um and so i think you picked an appropriate passage to kind of highlight that um that that type of writing and i think david your comparison to joyce is fair even if the purpose is different or it looks in a different way. I mean, Vodolashkin is a contemporary writer. So it's not, he's writing about something old, but he is a guy who's alive in the world after postmodernism in, um, in the literary scene. And there is, there is some element of postmodern writing in Loris and in all of his books. So given the themes of this book, 
what is the purpose of that choice? And then beyond what is the impact of it? Well, I think that's a, I think that, that part of the purpose is uh, that he's doing with the form what he's doing with the content, which is immersing us in a disorienting wor- world in something that we as moderns don't quite understand. And, and so the form of this novel um, reflects the, that world-making piece. And he doesn't make it easy on us. to. He's not like explaining everything. Um, he's also using a lot of anachronisms uh, like the word lefty, right? Um, or as well, like- he brought it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or like, you know, the the townspeople were saying like, you know, but and here's I think I think that that works because what he's drawing attention to with the townspeople is he understands that if he puts it, he puts their kind of vulgar, common reaction in any kind of archaic language. It sounds lofty and ennobling to us because of the way they talked. And he wants to draw attention to the fact that these people are vulgar and common. And so he uses a contemporary uh, colloquial kind of statement to highlight their superficiality in a way that we wouldn't get it if they were talking in medieval language. Um, And I think that's why our holy fool Foma speaks in profanities as well is to create this disorienting kind of experience of, wow, this holy fool is completely human. And yet he lives as a man of God. And he's always forcing us to reckon with the unity of the physical and material with the spiritual reality. And he never lets it be easy on us to idealize anybody or to dismiss anybody. There, we're all full, the, everybody in the story is fully human. Everything is fully embodied. Everything is both material and spiritual. And the form is reflecting that all the time, along with that kind of disorienting experience of having to figure out where we are in the narrative, just as we're figuring out where we are in the world that he's portraying. Go ahead, Tim. I think... We talked um, in the first couple of episodes about how this book um, kind of plays with the timeline. And I think, so let's, let's call James Joyce's um, changes in narrative structure kind of like maybe like an onset of postmodernism. I think one of the things that he's doing is James Joyce... I think Virginia Woolf and others are cracking linear time. There's a sense that a kind of like a chaos has entered the normal state of affairs in Europe after World War I. And time used to be experienced very linearly. When the sun went up, we went to work. When the sun went down, we rested from our work. Um, when the snow fell, we stayed inside. But now it's becoming a much more mechanized world that we live in, unless we're farther away from nature. And so literature is kind of cracking a straightforward linear timeline. I think this book is like cracking a straightforward linear timeline. And time is beginning to kind of jumble up. And let me give you another example. 
page 167. The chapter opens with a sentence. From then on, time definitively began moving differently for Arsene. More precisely, it simply stopped moving and remained idle. Previous to that sentence, the verb tenses, for the most part, have been past tense. So uh, like a couple paragraphs before those sentences that I just read, uh, Arsene crouched, grasped, uh, he could feel, thought. Uh, all the verbs are past tense. But now, after this sentence, more precisely, it simply stopped moving and remained idle. It begins to shift into present tense. And so all of these episodes that you mentioned, David, they just come one after the other. They're just kind of like rolling downhill on top of us. There's very little stitching together. It just feels like Arsini does this, Arsini does this, this holy foal does that, the baker does that. And they're just kind of cascading down on us. And I just think it's really interesting. They're all present tense. The verbs are all present tense. So I think even more than the kind of disorienting geography that we're in, namely like late medieval Russia, I think the thing that's come, the thing that is intriguing about this book, I think is the way that he's meddling with time. And he's, mm. I think, trying to cast a kind of temporal slash eternal vision of time through the workings of his prose. So it's more than that he's trying to place us into a world of dissonance or confusion, you're saying. I, I think there's like I a theological so. aspect. I really think so, yeah. Yeah. Um, our friend Brandon posted on Facebook that, um, I can't remember, I don't know what page it was on, but there's a mention in the middle of the prose. In fact, I'm just going to read the parts of it that I can. Last year's foliage had lost their color and yellow plastic da, 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 and yellow plastic bottles. The yellowed plastic bottles that are mentioned there are completely anachronistic. It makes no sense. And it's so jarring that Brandon, I think, correctly wondered if it was a translation error. And I don't know. Maybe there's a way to find out if that's a translation error. It's My not. Hunch it's intentional. Is that it it mm -hmm. seems intentional. It seems so intentional that like, we, we have plastic bottles in the middle of a medieval forest? That's, that can't be the case. But this is the story that our narrator is telling us where what is coming in the future, in the you know, 2021st century, yellowed plastic bottles can show up through this kind of folded timeline. It can show up in medieval Russia. So is Arseny experiencing a sort of, spirit of uh, time travel? It's more. It's less that he is traveling through time, and more that time is tr time is traveling, to, or he's entering time for the uh, rightly, as he becomes more and more cleansed from his passions. It's. It seems as though time is true time, eternal eternal time, is breaking through the veil, and he is seeing it. And our narrator is expressing that through the only way that he can, which is anachronisms. Otherwise, so it looks like Arseni is traveling. So it's who's like our, time is coming to him. So who's the narrator? 
we don't know. The narrator is omniscient. And, and I, I wonder if that is why, uh, we, we discussed the word, um, from a review of the book that claimed that, um, Baudelajkin's, uh, that the book was um, was aware, right? Yeah, self-aware. And Tim, you didn't like that word yeah. because to you, you you kind of con- connected it with um, with irony mm-hmm. and criticism. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering if there's more to it than that, right? If that's kind of where we're getting at with this idea of our of of the narrator who is who is hidden. We the narrator doesn't have personhood, but the narrator knows and is telling the story through. Um, uh, an experience of transcendence that Arsini is not yet fully aware of. And in that sense, the narrative itself is aware, self-aware. Yeah. If that's what that phrase means. So the, the question that I raised last week was from a review from the Los Angeles Review of Books. Loris is no seamless dream of Russia's past, but a very clever, self-aware, contemporary novel that nevertheless, da 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 and I did take that, and maybe wrongly, that phrase self-aware to be kind of, yeah, ironic. And I don't think it's ironic, but I think you're right, Heidi. It is a self-aware novel in that it is, it, it, it is keenly knowledgeable about the history of literature. I mean, that just seems so obvious that it may not need to be stated but there I and i think very obvious. aware of the risks it's taking too yeah 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 with yeah. the plastic bottles and that you know he seems uh i mean it's it's unapologetic it comes in and out and it I, it seems very to me the narrative itself seems very aware that it is difficult and, mm-hmm. and asks a lot of us and and invites us through struggling through reading to be a part of arseni's struggle he lets it be just as mysterious and confusing to us as it is to Arseni. Um, and I, I really, I, I find that very compelling. Um, the way I was wrong, I will say that the, when we first talked about it was David said, do you think this book is funny? And I said, no, I don't think it's funny. And I am wrong. Like this <laughs> book is really funny. Um, and I had just forgotten because I had, I take the book so seriously and so earnestly that I'd forgotten how funny it is. Um, especially this part about the holy fool. I, this is one of my favorite parts of the book, um, and I, 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 I really love holy fool Foma, and um, I had just forgotten how hilarious he is. So go ahead, Tim. Heidi, I think that our host is struggling with this book. I think David is really struggling with this book. Strugg- struggling? What do you mean? I think you ask what people mean when you know what they mean. <laughs> no, what do you, no, there's lots of ways that that could that could be interpreted. I think that you're not crazy about this book. I think that the reading of this book is you're not afraid of like hard readings. That's been proven over and over. Oh, but yeah. I, I wonder if you are kind of thinking. Well, no. Let me let me say it like this. I think that David would say. Um, if it's a hard reading, it needs to be, I need to see a level of sophistication that shows me it's worth the work and that it's not sloppiness. And I don't think that David thinks that this book is sloppy. Um, no, I don't think it's sloppy. Right. 
I think you think it's sophisticated. I wonder if you're kind of like, man, I just don't know if the trick that he has up his sleeve is as profound as the profundity of the difficulty of the reading of the book. <laughs> um, is that like <laughs> remotely close, David? Um, the, I don't know. Um, is it remotely close? Sure. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't know that I think, I think what I might say is that I don't know that the profundity of the trick or that the trick is as profound as the ideas Ooh, that the book is expressing. More. Well, I think part of what Heidi loves about it is that there, it's, it's after these deep theological questions right it's it's making claims and and expressing ideas and taking us places that you can't go in a straightforward any sort of straightforward way i think all of that is true um and i think what i would say is that the the formal choices that and and dramatic choices that he makes the formal choices have a dramatic impact on the narrative that can limit I feel like we're having deja vu. I think we probably talked about this. Like, I, I probably said this exact same thing like about a book in the last year or something. I just think that sometimes the the formal choices that he makes limit the dramatic tension, oh. thus keeping less limiting his ability to express and dive into the theological questions and theses that he holds dear. I think if you're on his wavelength, it works. Yeah. And so I don't, I'm, I'm a little hesitant to express how I, my thoughts on this because I know like Heidi, how much you love this book, oh, how, how earnestly you take say, it. I don't care what you think. That's not what I'm going to, that's not <laughs> what I mean, but I think I care a lot what you think. And so I want you to hear it regardless of how I feel about it. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, um, and, and I, I know some of our listeners have expressed, oh, this isn't my favorite, not uh, on, on the Facebook page, probably for a lot of the same reasons that you, mm -hmm. a lot of the same um, question marks or criticisms that you might have. And so I, I think it wouldn't, it wouldn't hurt to be really frank about that. Well, yeah. and I don't want to come across as saying my, um, like I, I'm trying to separate the like myself, like my what the moments when I don't personally care for it from like what I my I'm trying not to just Your make it like a personal judgments, thing. Right. yeah, right. Um, but also because those because the personal can change over multiple more readings, right? I can read it again in three years and I'll feel differently about it, and then I'll read it again in thirty years and feel different. You know, the feeling I don't care so much about that. I think it's worth maybe putting how you feel about something out there as a context for a conversation, but it's not like, I'm not like defining the book or, or trying to say whether the book is good or bad based on my feelings for it. So I'm trying to work through like a lot of my thoughts about the, um, the formal choices that he's making and how they impact the dramatic tension. Because for me, I find the book to be where I get frustrated is I find the book to be frustratingly cold mm. and 
a lot of people find it to be frustratingly meaningful. And what's interesting to me is that I'm Orthodox. Um, a lot of what he's talking about in the book is kind of inherently appealing to me. Um, I, and I think that part of it is that I've, maybe I'm looking at it thinking like almost like, okay, I'm going to say this in a very specific way. Just ignore everything that this could mean and just go with me on it. In a way I feel a little bit protective of orthodoxy when I read this book, Mm -hmm. because I think that for some people it, it can define orthodoxy in a way that is like, uh, I would say not true. Um, if you're not because I think that he doesn't understand orthodoxy, but because I think that people will come away from it thinking he's speaking in, there's a lot of like um, fable in this book. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of things in it that I think. So I, so I guess what I'm saying is there are times when my affection for the church that I'm a part of actually makes me feel cold about the book because I think that he is creating so much distance in it Hmm. through the formal choices that he's making. Um, I think for example, that like okay so i've been thinking about this a lot let me let me try to f- phrase the or, or, or form um throw this question out there and see if it can help us in this conversation i'm i'm having a hard time saying what i'm thinking because i'm having a hard time thinking what i'm actually thinking thinking what i'm thinking <laughs> right yeah and i'm and you know like tim i often would like to I occasionally would like to say something important um <laughs> But it's hard, but when you were trying to say something clearly to a lot of different, like it'd be different if you and I, if the three of us were just chatting right. and there was yeah, no other right, audience, right. So totally we didn't have any kind of time, that. any kind of time requirements or anything like that. Right. Um, we'd just be throwing things out there. And but why, for example, does he suddenly is he able to do miracles? Mm-hmm. Why is that something that he is capable of doing? Is that a real question or is that that's a, a real question. question? No, it's a real question. It's not a rhetorical question. I think within the story, it's after his symbolic death, which seems to indicate a cleansing of the passions. So because he is pure. And because he, can he now... has suffered to the, unto the point of death in the cleansing of his passions. And so when does that happen? After he almost freezes to death in the doghouse. Pre-cudgel. Yeah. No, after the cudgel. After his... So is the cudgeling the... No, the cudgel is the start of his journey as a holy fool. Then he goes to Pascoff. And he's he's told, don't don't worry, stop, just be a fool. Don't worry about... The other fool says, just be a fool. And then he takes a vow of silence and he spends, I think, a year, although I'm not sure if we're told the whole time, um mortifying his flesh being cleansed of his passions for and this is after he runs away from Xenia and he's aware of his passions and his ability to still remain tempted in the world in spite of the fact that he's made a vow to Sina and then he becomes aware that he is a healer he does have a gift but he is becoming increasingly tempted um which we haven't even talked about that. And that to me was like such a profound moment in, of, in this book. But anyway, then he goes and he becomes a holy fool and then his passions are cleansed. And then at that point, time begins to disintegrate and he begins 
to become a healer again, not to being healed, but to be a healer. Okay. From a, from the perspective. So here's where, from the perspective of the book says this, therefore this is true. I, I can see that sequence of events being uh, like, uh, I'm good with that. So then what is the correlation that the book is trying to make between being passion free and being able to heal somebody? Is that particular to him? Um, I don't know. I, I think it's particular to his, I don't, I don't know. I never even, I never thought about it being a general statement on the cleansing of the passions and the performance of miracles. I, I thought of it only in the particular, like I, I didn't see it as a theological or a mystical kind of human journey. I don't think this book is allegorical at all. I think it's a particular story of the life of a particular man who is a saint and this is his journey. It, ahead, can sir. I take up, um, I'm going to try to take up David's question. Line of questioning. Line of questioning, <laughs> Heidi. Maybe it's something like this and David, you're just going to jump in um, if I get this wrong, but maybe it's something hmm. like this. This man is becoming a saint. We're seeing him become a saint. And we're seeing him in some ways as he grows more um, self-effaced and humble, we see mm -hmm. his powers increasing. It should, it should be the case that we love him even more as this is happening. We should feel greater warmth toward him toward his deeds, toward his journey. But because of the choices that the author is making, it's actually something else is happening. We're growing more like confused and maybe even more distant. Like instead of feeling more warmth toward Arseni, we're feeling kind of like coldness toward mm. the narrative. Is it something like this, David? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I have, I've been thinking a lot about why as the book goes on, do I feel, and, and by feel, I'm just saying, uh, why do I feel response? Um, like this, yeah, 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 your, yeah, yeah. your response yeah. as a reader. Why does the book seem to be, yeah. Why do I, why do I feel um, like I care about him less? Uh-huh. Whereas like, and like I care what happens to him less. By so contrast, if we were hearing the story of mother Teresa, the farther we got into her life, the more that we understood her internal, like, state of being, the more we would like feel for her, respect her, love her, but something it's like the opposite is happening for David. Yeah. It's like, there's, there is almost a, a there's almost a thing where like, I, I'm, I find him annoying uh, this time through and I'm, I'm using stark terms here. Sure. Please, please understand that. I'm like, for the sake of conversation, I'm being a little bit hyperbolic. I find him a little annoying because we've gotten, to, he has, he has cleansed his passions, right? If he, if it's true that he is now a healer because he has cleansed his passions, then his like, his self-effacement is a little annoying at this point. Like in, I understand what he, what he's trying to say theologically, but from a dramatic perspective, from the storytelling perspective and from this perspective of like remaining in the head of this character and like 
going through a narrative, I find it to be kind of like a hard, like, and this has been this true of every time I've read this book and I'm trying to figure out how to get, how to get past it. Like, what is the book to asking us to do that's not intellectual in our relationship with mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this character? Mm-hmm. And there's a sort of, I can read it from a philosophical, theological perspective, but I have a hard time with it outside of the, the, my intellectual experience with him. From an intellectual experience with him, I find him very compelling. I find what he, the book is trying to do compelling. I enjoy thinking about what Vodoloshkin's trying to do, but I'm having a hard time like getting my, my... And that's why I'm talking about feelings. Like what is... Every book, you know, a narrative is often trying to play... Like the whole point of a narrative is to play with your heartstrings, right? <laughs> like Aristotle even talks about that, right? So what is the book trying to get me to feel along the way, unless it's some kind of guilt, thus leading to some sort of repentance. Hmm. But that's an interesting, I don't know that that's what he's trying to do here. Because as Heidi said, it's not meant to be allegorical. It's meant to be the story of one person. But if it's the story of one person, why am I having a hard time getting beyond the intellectual in terms of my relationship with him? Now, someone like Heidi, you if that's not a problem for you, you might have a very strong, deep, emotional response to to what he's experiencing but i find so much of what he's experiencing avoidable and i understand that's the point like the guy's like go be a holy fool go do crazy things make people look think about you uh in a weird way like make let people laugh at you but then if that's but then at the same time there's the sense that he has his passion he is now the fact that he is now a healer would suggest that is no longer necessary is what i'm hearing you say because he has gone through this cleansing well and there's still a lot of the story to go there absolutely is i'm, I'm right. like leaving a lot of open i'm having right. a hard time here because i'm leaving a lot of this open <laughs> right. kind of like open-ended for right. because for people who haven't read it right yeah some of this gets resolved it's strange. I sympathize pretty strong with what David's saying. And yet, <laughs> I still really like this book. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. I find it very compelling, even as it's not like a hard book for me. If I, if right. I, I just want to make sure that that's out there. Yeah, right, right. I mean, I, I'm you know, going to finish this book here in the next two weeks. And I think I'm going to have the same question in my mind that I had the first time I got done reading it, which is, why did I like this book? You know, like, why did I like, why is this book so compelling so, to me? Can I put a, can I put something out there? Yeah. I think there's different kinds of reasons why you might like this book. On the one hand, there is kind of like a puzzle aspect of it, which you get with Joyce, where you're like trying to get through, you're trying to like look at all the different choices he makes and then put them all together and try to get this big picture based on all the different authorial choices Vodoloshkin's making. There's the theological side of things. You can, you can be very interested in like the theological questions or even the philosophical questions or even the anthropological questions if you want to separate that category out from those other two, which I think is debatable as a life choice. But you, you could, uh, you could um, look at it from that perspective as well. And I, but I think, Heidi, for you, it's more than those two things. Like there, It does seem to be something deeply emotional about it. And so I'm curious if you can kind of get into that without getting into like your own soul sure i mean <laughs> i'm not yeah, asking for you to thanks, be con- to confess yep. your own life here but like where do you find the emotional side of it compelling in a way that i'm having a hard time getting into because that might help me 
I think it's the depth of his suffering is so um sad yeah and and so powerful to me and um and emotional like emotionally um like magnetic to me Hmm. and I don't oh go ahead go ahead finish your thought sorry I don't think that the story is allegorical I don't think it's meant to be like a hero's journey for a saint right but I do find myself in it and that's why I love it like I I do feel as though I have committed great sins through blindness and desire and have had to live a path of self-denial and through Mm -hmm. that has is this cleansing pilgrimage to the kingdom Mm -hmm. of god like that i i relate to it obviously very different circumstances we just had a conversation about how bougie i am (laughs) Um, so which i would like to think that i would gladly give up if 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 god asked me to um or if i needed to in any way but anyway the point is that I, I find myself in Arseni and the depth of his, of his suffering is, is very emotionally connecting to me. Um, I don't find any distance in the narrative, but I understand how you could, because it is, there's a very specific style of writing that creates distance between the narrative voice and the reader. And I think that that is a, um, like I, I, I do think to your point, David, I do think that's a preference issue. That's perfectly valid on one side to another. Do you like this style of writing or do you not like this style of writing? Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that that's, um, that, that like, you don't really like it and I do. And so that creates that and that's not about the story itself that's not about orthodoxy or sunny like that's just mm-hmm. about the way we like to read certain types of writing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and that's why i'm trying to be careful about like absolutely well and i think i mean even like for example and we won't spend every week talking about my no, no, no. or yeah, my frustrations we're, we haven't spent any time at all like we're pushing you on it um and i i I think even as we've read other books, we've seen that Um, like you, I'm calling you out on this, but it's not really a call out. It's just a statement. You don't like really long books. You like really tightly written, tightly constructed sentences and narratives, right? So, Which by the way, I was just talking to Bethany about this last night. I am like loving East of Eden. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I love it is because I can't figure out, you're right. I don't love long books. But to me, as far as a long book goes, it's so tight. Mm-hmm. Like I'm just like blown away by how tight it is. And so I'm really enjoying that. And this is not tightly written at all. Right. Right. It, it's it's expansively written. Like not right. like long descriptions or whatever, but the sentences right. are longer than they need to be. There's more, there's subordinate clauses that don't need to be there. There's propositional phrases that don't or prepositional phrases that don't really need to be in there. Probably some propositional like, ones. Too. Probably propositional too. But like there's a lot in here that's like I can imagine you as an editor being like, I would cut that, I would cut that, I would get rid of this, I would move this over here, right? Like there, so that well, I can separate myself out from that, but I yeah, know there, that it, you can. I know you can. Of course you can. Um, 
And just like I, there's books we've read that I'm like, oh, I don't, this is just, this is a lot. So anyway, <laughs> I, I want to just affirm the fact that preferences and writing styles are completely valid. And that's why I, I tried to, you know, say, you know, I find this a very compelling book, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's a book that like, I kind of, I don't get like excited to sit down and read a 60 pages. I wonder if the opening comparison to James Joyce is, might be instructive here also, because, okay, the beginning of this book that we're reading starts with like straightforward, compelling narrative, especially the loss of his wife and child. It's like riveting. Mm. Yeah, that's it's a really, yeah. great yeah. writing in its straightforward narrative, not unlike Dubliners by James Joyce. Mm. Like I was thinking about this, anybody actually. who disputes that James Joyce can write beautifully and traditionally has never read Dubliners. It's just, it's brilliant. Araby is heart wrenchingly beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And then he leaves yeah, I mean, Dubliners and he goes tripping the light fantastic. And, <laughs> you know, like Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man is like really compelling because yeah. it's kind of a mixture of of wildness and straightforward narrative. Mm-hmm. And then by the time he gets mm-hmm. to Ulysses and definitely by the time he gets to Finnegan's wake, you're like, what, what are we doing here, bro? And so, okay. If, and it seems to me like we're traveling a similar path. We're not going to get all the way to like Finnegan's wake in this book, but it's just, <laughs> it gets complicated and it gets confusing. And so maybe part of it for you, David is like, if if James Joyce was going to write on something that was really dear to you, I have a hunch that you would prefer him to write about it in the style of Dubliners rather than the style of Ulysses. I think there, I, I, you know, some of the things that I've learned about myself on this show, like learned how to express about myself, myself is that, you know, when we talk about tight writing, there is the idea of crisp sentences there's all those sorts of things, but there's also, we talk all the time about my, how I love, like, or I talk all the time about like, what are the phrases I use? Like scene making, mm. scene crafting. I love when the way scenes are put together, um, the way, uh, the way a moment is created. And there's uh, some kind of a meaning out of that. We spent, I spent like a bunch of time just like freaking out about how great a scene was in East of Eden yesterday when we were recording that episode. Um, and this is one of those books that kind of does it other than like the scene that you mentioned with the, the childbirth. There's not a lot of like that kind of thing in it. Right. And so right. it's really compelling to, to watch him try to create, I, I say that sounds condescending, to watch him create this narrative with all this meaning without creating scenes that, are real scenes like it feel. And I think that's one of the things I have a hard time with is scenes end with, and then the next thing begins and there's not a lot of space for them to breathe and for the moment to breathe and for it to become something in our consciousness. And so as readers, I think that's why I, I, it, it sounds, it reads a little bit like a stream of consciousness to me because as a reader, that lack of breathing space create, doesn't allow those scenes to take a particular meaning. And so when they're crammed together, it's all that meaning is happening all at one time in our, in our, in our imaginations. Right. So that, that can be a little bit of a challenge, um, in terms of how we experience it. Tim, I know you need to go where we've done our hour. Um, 
I'm going to let you give some final thoughts and then Heidi. And, and I want to make sure that we get plenty of time to talk about the idea of Holy Fools. So and I think we can still do that in future episodes as well. But Heidi, if you want to touch on that a little bit uh, for people as they're reading, maybe explain a little bit after Tim gives his final thought about where the idea, what the idea is and why it seems so, maybe why it seems so strange to some people and give some people some context for as they go into the next batch of, of uh, chapters. So Tim, um, I know you need to go. So you want to offer some final thoughts? I, I just, I find it interesting that our next section is, it seems going to be a trip to Jerusalem, you know? So the kind of like path that Arseni is walking is going to that most holy place for Christians, Jerusalem. Seems fitting. Mm. Mm. And I do think that one thing that Vodolashkin does is uh, he's pretty interesting in terms of the way the different sections of the book actually evolve in their style. So I think he evolves again um, a little bit, which maybe we can talk about that uh, as he goes to this new place. So Tim, if you need to go, farewell and uh, bon voyage. Bon voyage. Be safe. and See you in a week. Sounds good. See ya. Heidi, should we say something mean about Tim now? Right. Let's definitely say something mean about Tim. I just wish I could think of anything at all. <laughs> I he can't. Sweats. He sweats a lot. <laughs> well, you know, we That's have to. Fact, we all have to be. We all have these bodies, as Arsini understands. <laughs> it's true. It's true. We should be talking about Tim sweat a lot more on these conversations, probably. <laughs> if ever there was a book. Right. Right. For a medieval description of the sweat glands. <laughs> um, um, okay, so Holy Fools, do you want to touch on this a little bit before we go? It seems um, important. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. So the um, the Holy Fool is an is a person who gives their give who fights the passions and fights for the life of the world by giving up any kind of prestige in society, they become a fool for Christ. Um, and homeless often take vows of silence, um, don't wash their bodies. Um, a lot of them, uh, like Arseni here, dwell in graveyards. Actually, what's interesting is that one of the most famous holy fools in Christian tradition is St. Xenia, um, who is a woman holy fool. And that is the name of the woman that uh, um, that Arseni leaves behind and in order to become a holy fool. And I'm sure that's not purposeless, right? I'm sure that's purposeful. Um, but the, the idea is that um, you become a holy fool for the world's fight and the soul's salvation, to use David Hicks' term um, or phrase there, um, that a holy fool fights the passions in their own soul by denying their body's needs uh, and spending that time in prayer. Um, usually they don't sleep, um, they don't wear shoes, you know, all the things that we see Arseni do. Uh, there's a long tradition of holy fools in the church. Um, mm -hmm. And in that way, they fight their own passions. And then also in so doing, they take on then uh, the sufferings of Christ uh, and, and use that, use their foolishness to become wise in the ways of God and to pray for the life of the world. So they're known as really holy people. Um, and the first holy fool, according to Christian tradition, was John the Baptist. I, I brought this up because obviously it's a key part of this book, but I think that the, um, I, I have found I had students and then people I've run into uh, have 
confused it with like the idea of like a Shakespearean fool. Hmm. Yeah, very um, different. So here, here you do have the idea of this, as you said, this holy fool is, he's a little funny. Yeah. He's super uh, funny. Um, FOMA. And in a way, best. he does have a sort of Shakespeare, uh, like almost a sort of Falstaffian vibe to him, mm. um, but with very different sort of context. And, and actually, like if you've never heard the concept of a holy fool, but you know about, you've read a lot of Shakespeare, then I can see that being something that people get confused about. So the idea of the holy fool in the church, is that something that in your understanding it's a particular kind of person that's called to that. Are we all called to the idea of being a holy fool no. to some degree? Yeah. <laughs> How does that work? Yeah, I think we're all called to be fools for Christ. And mm-hmm. one thing that the, that the church acknowledges so frankly, especially in the lives of the saints, is that their saints become these caricatures in a very holy way. Um you know, we, for example, you know, David, you're Orthodox, we fast during Lent, but the mm-hmm. saints fast during Lent, right? They eat three grains of rice per day and they began fasting the moment they came out of their mother's womb. And, you know, they, they, there's this extremity of the ascetic life that people like you and I don't aspire to or attain to. And therefore, because they are given to us as types to imitate and we fall so short, we, we hopefully maintain a spirit of humility during the fast, knowing that we don't attain to the same feats of asceticism as they did. Um, and, and they're do. called like, it does seem like they're also, but there is a sense to which they're called to a. Yes. Yes. You know, he is called to talk about that. Like fool. people are different. People are called to different things and they're given different, you know, he, he part, I think part of, you rarely will see a holy fool with children, right. for example. Like there, there's a, you, when you have children, your calling is to keep them alive. Right. <laughs> and the things that a holy fool does will often be, be difficult to keep children um, functioning. Right. Well, and we do um, see here that part of the reason that he is a holy fool and he is called to great sanctity during this season of his life is because he has greatly sinned. And hmm. that is a huge part of, um, of, of the church's teachings on, on sainthood, right? Like you can sin greatly if your repentance is great. And, and that is part of our journey because of what he has done, uh, because of his participation and what is still the jury still out on his scene as damnation, according to his vision of it. Right. Yeah. Then, yeah, we, right. Yeah. then yeah, yeah. he has to commit great acts of holiness and service and sacrifice, um, for the for the mortifying of his flesh and for the salvation of his soul and these other two souls that are on his conscience. One of the things that I find most compelling about this book is that question of of the degree to which Arsene's view of Ustina's salvation and her and her damnation and his his is his view of himself true. Hmm. is his view of her damnation true like that's one of the things that's most compelling about the book is like is the book saying that the way he thinks about all of this is 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 accurate i'm so glad you asked that because i really think his renunciation of exenia is the um yeah that's a great example is like it is the moment and the boy and the boy um sylvester and i I was talking to Emily about this, my, my, my good friend, Emily, I was talking to her about this book and she 
was telling me, she said, when I first read Loris, she said, I was absolutely, I absolutely believed that he made the wrong decision of from leaving Xenia. That she big Xenia's accusation, you are you are destroying the living for the sake of the dead. Mm-hmm. Was she said, I thought he, that she was right. Like he should have stayed and been a father to this fatherless boy and been a husband to this woman who needed to be protected and loved and provided for. This was his opportunity for salvation. And he renounced it. And that was wrong. Like she thought all the way to the end of the book until the last pages of the book, she said, I thought, um, I thought that it, that he made the wrong decision and the, everything that came after was the consequence of that decision. So I think it's a major turning point. And I think it's a huge, huge, uh, like to me, when I think of, you know, when people say to me, what are the major differences between the Protestant vision of salvation and the Orthodox or kind of the more, or the more liturgical sacramental kind of visions of soteriology or salvation, the theology of salvation. I always think of Arseni leaving Xenia because if it is true that we do not, there's man, it's just such a theological turning point in the story Like if you believe once saved, always saved, like Christ's work is the only thing that saves us, like, and we don't have to participate really, then like he should have stayed with her and everything else is just self-flagellating, like wrong thinking about salvation. And I, I think that's a valid way to read the book. Honestly, I think you can read it that way from this point out. I mean, that's where I think that's kind of what I was talking about earlier with like, I, because I care about orthodoxy, it's, um, it's a little bit difficult for me to know how to read it because, and how to call, and how to talk about it, because I I think he I think the book is saying, and I think I bet Vodolashkin would say this, and I've heard Orthodox priests and writers say this about this book that at best he toes the line of self-flagellation. Like yeah. it is a question of it's whether a question he, yes, like that is a question. Even if you buy, even if you completely buy into even the if you're entire, Orthodox, yes, even if you're Orthodox, if, if you're Russian Orthodox, if you buy into like the cultural aspects of of it there as well, because that is part of it as well. The right. Russian aspect of it is definitely part of it. Um, I have a friend who's Russian, and he always talks about the idea of like the Russian gift for suffering, right? Um, and that's right. like there is there's almost like a Russian pride in being able to bear the slings and arrows. And I think that is also a theme in this book. Like he toes it, it's almost like he toes the line of pride at his own suffering. And I don't know that I would say that he that he is prideful in it, but the book takes us up to the edge of that as a right. theme. Right. Which I think is what I was trying and probably failing to say that this is not a this is this is a novel that has multiple Mm. interpretations. Mm -hmm. It is not intended to be, you know, some like rallying cry for orthodoxy. The fact that- It's not even, I mean, it's it's not not even clear- no. If you, can, you couldn't read this and come out of it and be like, okay, now I get well, orthodoxy. No, like- <laughs> If you never had, experienced it. I, I mean, we've all known people who have died without the sacraments. My own mm-hmm. mother. Right. My, yeah. I've had miscarriages yeah. and lost babies, right? Like, and and I am yeah. I am not a holy fool because I believe that God in his grace and in his mercy has made a way for salvation for people who have died without the sacraments. And I'm an Orthodox. Mm-hmm. 
Arseni, however, takes it very seriously. And it all depends on the strength of his love and his prayers. And so to him, the book of renunciation, this whole book that we just read over the last two weeks, is his mortifying of the flesh for the for the love of Ustina. And mm-hmm. and and how we interpret that becomes, I think, the should question of the book. And we don't have to think he does everything right. Mm-hmm. It can be a conversation. And it's yeah, not yeah. just intended to represent orthodoxy and 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 kind of like bring us into the fold. Yeah, I was thinking about how rather than being like a apology for orthodoxy, it's more of like um, a story steeped in orthodoxy. Right, exactly. And it's it's like, it's, it's just kind of like, and raises Living. the questions of orthodoxy. Yeah, you're right. It's and like it's like a story that takes place in the swamp of orthodoxy, and I don't use the swamp in a, in a right. derogatory fashion. Just like sometimes you get bogged down in it, sometimes you float on it. You know, a swamp is a complicated ecosystem, and I think that that's kind of what's what the book is doing. It's it's dwelling in that, um, and yeah, I mean, we if. I'm sure there's lots of people that will end up coming out of this book and these conversations with like a lot of uh, questions about Orthodox theology. And we can tell you some books to read if you want to, if you want to talk about that, but opinions um, about it. And I think even within, it's important to say that like, could he have stayed with Xenia and been a father to this boy and a husband Mm -hmm. and, and Ustina still have been saved, right? Like that is, that's not the path he took. And so we don't, we don't get to see that path. What we see mm-hmm. is the path of renunciation. Mm-hmm. And whether or not you think he made the right decision or not, it is a great love that motivates somebody to do what he did. Mm. Yeah, that's true. That's why you talked about a love story last, yeah. last week. Side note, I had a friend in high school. Um, her name, she was r- Russian. Her parents were Russian. She was born there. Her name was, she said Ksenia, yeah. but it was spelled exactly the same way. She, they American, they Anglicized it, but yeah. So when I saw, when I read that, I was like, oh yeah, I knew a person with that exact name. Yeah. Wonder what she's up to. We have a couple of Xenias in our church, little ones mm. and a big icon of the saint. Mm. Well, lived um, in a graveyard. this has been fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anything else you want to add? No. How about you? No. Just that um, Tim, you know, Tim's right that I have like, it's not like a, it's, I have a complicated relationship with this book because I do find it compelling, but I don't get like, it's not my kind of book in terms of the narrative structure. So I'm trying to like, it's not that I don't like it. I just want to make that clear. I, I'm not like, um, I just find it to be difficult in some ways mm-hmm. um, to spend a lot of time with. That's how I felt about <laughs> Confederacy of Dunces. Yeah, and it's I totally really fair. wanted to love it because people like you and Sean and like you both really like that book. And so I really wanted to love it. And I, I just never could, but I respected it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's a good word. I respect this book a lot. And my wife loves this book. A lot of people I know love this book. My dad loves this book. Um, uh, not Confederacy of Dunces, Loras. I have a feeling my wife would hate Loras. I mean, would hate Confederacy of Dunces actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, um, but yeah, I think, I, th- I think one of the great things about doing this podcast, about reading in this community, about reading in any community is reading things that other people love that you, and, and discovering why they love them and having right. those conversations and being able to say, well, okay, but what about this? And then being convinced that you're a fool 
but not a holy fool. Uh, and, I wish I was you a know, holy fool instead that, of like, just a fool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Um, and and uh, <laughs> great line. Did you make that up on the spot? I did. I made it up right on the spot. That was really good. That, that's Thanks, uh, like, that's like kind of impressive. Um, <laughs> well, it's almost like you true. thought about it, but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, 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 that's, that's why we read these books together though. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, there's a lot of people out there who feel like me that they're um, exactly a little frustrated by it. So, you know, it's good to have the conversations because hopefully we can, hopefully I was getting at a little bit, what other the, the, the struggles that other people have with it. Um, the second half of this book, I think does answer a lot of those questions, mm-hmm. even as it doubles down on some other things that some of us are frustrated with. Um, the book is what it is, right? It's, it's, it, it's, it is true to itself. Um, but it's also, um, a lot of different kinds of stories and a lot of it's, it's getting at a lot of different kinds of truths. Um, and that's why he is so talented and why he's worth reading and why his books I think will last, as you said. And, uh, um, do you find the aviator by the way to be or his newest one to be more Joycean or less Joycean? Less. Um the aviator is certainly like he uses a um an epistolary style in yeah, the right. aviator and in Brisbane. Um and Brisbane is told from to a, a point of view in the present of the story and a point of view in the past. Um, mm-hmm. and then you kind of like weave them together as, as you go. Um, and yeah, the aviator is journal entries. Um, so, but it still has his, like this writing style is used in like the, the way he writes his sentences and stuff like that's very characteristic of all of his writing. <laughs> 